0: Well, brothers and sisters, let us return to the first book of the Bible, the first of Moses' five books, turn to Genesis chapter 3. If you are using the Bibles provided, uh, you see that the page number is there in your bulletin, it's page 3, Genesis chapter 3. The preaching of the word will come from one verse, it'll come from verse 7, but for the context. Of that verse, I'll begin reading at verse 6, and I'll read through verse 11. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 6, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes Made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of a tree which I commanded you not to eat? This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we are aware that you've told us in Holy Scripture that as it goes out, as it is heard, it does something to all who hear. Whether for good or for ill, it is powerful that way. And our prayer... that for all of us here, its effect will be for good, even unto salvation and growth and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that this will be true. All who are gathered and each one of us do this good work in our hearts, we each pray. Bless the preaching of your word again today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be using the expression whole new world several times this morning, but I'm not using it in the Disney sense of the expression. That's a very pleasant thing, very exciting thing, to step into a whole new world, and Jasmine steps onto the flying carpet. Aladdin is able to show her a whole new world. And a kind of initiation for her. It's life-changing for the good. But I want to speak this morning about the whole new world that Adam and Eve have stepped into at this point in the story. They've eaten the forbidden fruit. This is life-changing but not for the good. It's in a kind of initiation, but into things that are dreadful. It's a whole new world, to be sure, but it is a world of evil that they're stepping into. It happens to be the world that we live in. The world that has been ever since that moment that Adam and Eve took and eight, we've been watching them as they have come under influences that have led them to that. We watch them take the fateful step of disobedience, and now we're interested in the immediate consequences for them. You could say that the whole Bible is about the extended consequences. The whole Bible, the whole plan of redemption that God brings, is to resolve the long-standing consequences of what they do. But Genesis three seven speaks of an immediate effect. for Adam and Eve they step into a whole new world, as it were. If you're visiting with us this morning, just know that we're taking very seriously this Genesis 3 account. We believe that it is here in our Bibles in order to explain to us how our world came to be as broken as it is. How mankind indeed came to be capable of the kind of wickedness that we are reading about in our papers or news outlets day by day. Seemingly small step. A simple decision, first by a woman, then by a man. There, our first parents in the garden, they fail a test, they break a commandment, they eat forbidden fruit, but according to the scriptures, This is Adam and Eve and all their descendants' initiation into evil. Genesis 3.7 speaks of three elements of that initiation. The first is this. Adam and Eve are initiated into a whole new world of knowledge. So what happened Adam and Eve, as a result of their eating of the forbidden fruit, well, actually it was in a very certain sense the exact thing that they wanted to happen, at least that the serpent had predicted would happen. The serpent had said, back in verse 5, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, and Moses tells us in chapter 3, verse 7, then the eyes of both. Were opened. Children, this is not a literal reference. It's not as if Adam and Eve had trouble opening their eyes like puppies when they're first born don't have their eyes open. This is a, a figure of speech, it's a way of speaking. We still use this language. We talk about having an eye opening experience. Even in our society, we speak that way. What we mean is that we come to realize something. We come to know something. Our eyes are opened, we say. And, of course, that's what God had called the tree from the beginning. The tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was ordained by God that eating from this tree would be a way of gaining knowledge of two opposite things. Good. I wonder if you've wondered, I've wondered, why it wasn't simply called the tree of the knowledge of evil. After all, didn't Adam and Eve already know good? Indeed, they knew God, who is all good. They had known everything he'd made, which was perfectly good. And in fact, their whole world was a world of goodness what, as, what could they possibly know more of good? Why wasn't it just called the tree of the knowledge of evil? Well, think about this. So much of our knowledge as humans is, in fact, by means of contrast. We know what it's like when soil gets parched and dry because we've seen it wet. We know that when we get up in the morning this time of year... We think, oh, it's cold in here, because we know what it's like to feel warm. Choosing what was evil, and experiencing that evil themselves, Adam and Eve actually did acquire a new perspective on what is good, because they'd experienced the antithesis of good, so They're able to know both evil and good in a new way. They really did become a little bit more like God in that respect. That's what God himself will say in verse 22. Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. But what a price this knowledge came with. This is what the serpent hid from Eve. Turned the truth-telling of the serpent into a cruel deception. They would know evil because they'd personally partake of it. They would know good all the better because it was what they had fallen from. They know both good and evil. They know the contrast. They can see it in their own experience. I want to pause right here and say that this much of the experience of Adam and Eve ought to sound... Familiar. we ought to lament just here our own experience of this very thing so we've acquired personally and experientially a knowledge of evil we've paid quite a high price for that knowledge folks don't you have certain things that you wish you could unknow don't you Certain things you wish you could unexperience, if you will. Certain kinds of evil that perhaps you'd heard of and it was a theoretical knowledge, but then the day came a decision you made or decisions others made in your life and it became part of your experience. And you came to know something in a way that you've come to regret profoundly wish you didn't know. You've seen things. You've heard things. You've been exposed to things. You've done things that had its own effect of opening your eyes. You see, God, who is all-knowing, can know good and evil without himself being tainted by anything that's evil. But our knowledge of evil is soiled us, degraded us. We've had our own initiations into the knowledge of good and evil. What should be our response to that? How should we live in light of that? I'm going to begin by speaking to those who are Christians. You're committed to following the way of Christ And I want to remind you something about the Christian life in light of this experience that I and Eve had and that we all have something in our own experience that corresponds to. This should be true of you in your Christian life, in your pursuit of following after Christ. You should be increasingly willing not to know a great deal about this world and its evil. A willingness not to know. The very thing that Adam and Eve weren't willing to continue with. A not knowing. This experience of evil. Brothers and sisters, it's actually this journey of redemption that God has started you on if you're a Christian. That's actually where it's taking us. It's taking us out of an experiential knowledge of what is evil. We're becoming more and more knowing of God and less and less knowing of evil. A word for that that we use frequently is sanctification, where the world of evil becomes more and more alien to us and unfamiliar to us, and righteousness becomes more and more familiar and attractive to us. This is what the apostle means when he says that almost throwaway comment. There are no throwaway comments in the Bible, but it's that almost throwaway comment in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. He says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. Now, the main thought in that verse as he writes to the Corinthian church is, Stop being childish. Grow up. That's the main theme of his exhortation. But then he says, almost to interrupt himself, wait, wait. There's one way I want you to be positively childish. And that's in regard to evil. What's Paul talking about? I well, think he's talking about the knowledge of good and evil. That Adam and Eve step into when they disobey this is true of infants that come to the world. They are very much without knowledge and experience of the world. I'm not saying infants coming to the world are innocent. Thank you very much, Adam. They're not innocent. They're not guiltless. But they are without knowledge and experience of the world. And Paul is saying that's a good place to be when it comes to evil. You should aspire to leave your knowledge and your experience of evil behind. And in that sense, you should be becoming more and more like newborns in Christ. Paul is speaking of what should be our response to this experience we all have partaken of with Adam and Eve of choosing to know. Living to regret it. I think this is a direct challenge to what is so pervasive in the Christian church today. Which is a kind of voyeurism towards the world. We're going to stay in the church. We're going to color within the lines, more or less. We're going to be good boys and girls but through all the means that we now have at our disposal we are going to look at the evil of this world. That's voyeurism. Gaining some kind of satisfaction from seeing the evil of others. This comes in high forms and low forms. Some of the Great and celebrated pieces of literature, high art, seem to be delving into evil, imaginative, and creative ways. And of course, there is the low and grimy, grubby forms of voyeurism that the church is guilty of today. The sin of our first parents was in wanting to know. Brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have that desire too. But that desire should be dying. It should be dying in you. That's what the Christian life entails. It involves God, by his grace, returning us praise be to god to a state of innocence that's where we're headed a state of innocence like adam and eve had in the garden and if that's what god has in store for us one of the evidences that he's doing that work in you is that you are increasingly willing not to know you don't want to know you don't want this knowledge of evil and even of good from the vantage point of evil. Adam and Eve were initiated into a whole new world of knowledge. Second, Adam and Eve were initiated into a whole new world of shame. So it's very clear, crystal clear in Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve were initiated into the knowledge of good and evil. The tree is named that, but In verse 7, it's interesting. That's not how it's put. It doesn't say, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew good and evil. That is clear from Genesis 3, but that's not what Moses says. He says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. What? What does their nakedness have to do with all this? Touching this already in this series. Adam and Eve's newfound sense, nakedness, is due to their sense of wrongdoing. They've sinned against God. They've broken his law. They've done something despicable. And you might say that registers with them in a fundamentally psychological way. That would actually be a good use of the word. They become self-conscious and anxious about the exposure that's inevitable of who they really have become, those who've broken God's simple command. Folks, they're ashamed of what they've done. And this registers with them at the sense of nakedness. Shame is the original neurosis. Now, we don't have any reason to think that Adam and Eve underwent immediate physical changes. They would undergo physical changes, to be sure. As the punishment of God settles in upon them and they begin to age and grow old and all the rest. We have no reason to think that in that moment, after they've taken that fateful step, they change physically. But there's a whole world of spiritual difference. They're now rebels and sinners They've betrayed the best possible friend, indeed father. And this registers with them, with this sense we're about to be seen for who we are, for what we've become. What is that element of their initiation revealing to us? Well, think about it. They've not only been ushered into a world of knowledge first point now they're ushered into a world of fear of being known they have knowledge they didn't have before they don't want to be known in a very new way we call that shame shame is that aversion that we have to being known As we truly are. Out of awareness of what sin has done to us. Can I pause here and say again? We know exactly what that is. We know exactly what Adam and Eve were experiencing. We know this voice in our heads, don't we? What if someone found out? We know that, don't we? We know that fear of being exposed, of being revealed. We know the desire not to be seen. We know the sense that we are unsightly in who we really are. It's been pointed out, Adam and Eve don't wait until they hear the sound of God returning to the garden and when they know that his confrontation of them is imminent to take these steps or even to feel what they feel, they know there's something wrong and there's something inside them. It doesn't take God showing up, there's something inside them that is condemning them for what they've done, it makes them uncomfortable in their own skin, as we would say. It's suddenly ashamed. Not only is knowing a problem, but now being known as a problem a whole new world they've stepped into. It's the world we live in. I'm right there with everyone else concerned about big tech, particularly the combination of big tech and government agencies right there. My privacy is precious to me. I read the headlines Uh, Now I understand that my car might be talking about me behind my back. You know this. I hate to give you something to lose sleep over, but yeah, the computer in your car is recording stuff and it's not all being kept there in your car. You have a a modern car. Don't like this at all. I see a lot of people that are very agitated about it. And folks, can I just add my own suspicion? I wonder if as a society we freak out about this in part because we have a lot to hide. We don't want to be known as we really are. The Conversations we have alone in our car for that matter. We have secrets. We have things we want to hide. And so this zeal for privacy that's gaining more and more steam in our society is because of that neurosis that began in the garden. I don't want people to know about who I really am. Here's where I want to say to my fellow Christians, indeed to all of us here this morning, shame is not the problem. that neurosis it's regrettable <laughs> it's sure not pleasant that desire to keep things covered in your life because you're not happy about other people knowing that's that's the pits it's not the problem shame is actually a help in pointing to the problem Folks, I just observe as tragic as it is for Adam and Eve to feel uncomfortably exposed after they've sinned, their shame is actually very reasonable. The proper response to sin, shame at what we've done, who we've become, is the function of something theologians call a conscience. You know the word well here at Resurrection. Conscience is that God given. Faculty of the soul that either approves of what you do or disapproves of what you do based on your own innate sense of right and wrong. Something God has given you as a creature made in his image. And so shame is the voice inside your head saying to you, you know what you did was wrong. This is so important to keep straight because our society sees shame itself as the problem. Shame is not pointing to the problem. Shame is the problem. Our society, you know this, sees shame as just a sociological phenomenon. We experience shame when we don't live up to other people's expectations and sometimes they impose their expectations on us in really harmful ways to us and so shame is merely sociological we want to be accepted by others when they don't accept us for certain things that are not socially accepted then we feel shame it's purely horizontal you see this this is our society but I point out to you Adam and Eve are not feeling naked they're not ashamed because they're not living up to society's expectations they're alone in the garden. They're alone with their consciences, maybe I should say. And they're ashamed. There's something about how they've been made, God's image makes them aware I've become something loathsome in God's eyes. The shame in your life is actually a fairly reliable guide to what's wrong in your life. It's not the problem, it's pointing you to the problem. If you like, think of it as shame is to your soul what pain is to your body. It's the first indicator to you that something unhealthy just happened. Our society is in rebellion against shame as it rebels against God. No shame is our motto as a society. And we don't mean by that what Paul means when he says, you live in such a way that you'll never be ashamed of yourself. No, that's not what the society means. It means do not be ashamed of anything that you do. So I suspect that our cultural counselors... Had they been there to help Adam and Eve debrief on the situation, would have said something like this. Sure, you've betrayed the God who made you, but it's what you wanted to do, isn't it? So you're sinful now. Everybody can see that. Embrace who you are. Be you. And don't anyone let you be ashamed for being true to yourself. like a dentist with a man with a toothache, just prescribing narcotics, sending them off with the words, there's more where that came from. Nothing's being done but the source of the shame. I ask you, my friends, every last one of you, a rhetorical question. It doesn't require an answer out loud. What are you ashamed of? What are you quite rightly ashamed of? What do you not want to be known? What about you has made it actually perhaps difficult to be here today? That sense of shame you have, it is not the problem Sin is the problem. It's what you've done. It's who you've become. Shame is just the reminder of those things. Don't think, I just need to do something about my shame. Realize, I need to do something about my sin. Before I tell you what is the right thing to do about your sin... I need to tell you, don't do what Adam and Eve did. That's number three. Adam and Eve were initiated first into a whole new world of knowledge, second into a whole new world of shame. Adam and Eve, thirdly, are initiated into a whole new world of futile self-improvement, we'll call it. Verse 7 concludes... And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Pretty creative solution. I think you do have to give credit to Adam and Eve in all their newness to life on the planet and their newness to this sense of nakedness. Adam becomes the first tailor. Eve becomes the first seamstress, you might say. Think about it. They're actually quite remarkable, this little miniature textile factory. They invent some method for fixing together leaves into some kind of garment. All our translations put it as sewing. That's pretty impressive. There's discussions, you might imagine, about why the fig leaf. And the most practical answer is because they're large. Fig leaves are large, useful for the purpose There's a lot more discussion, though, about the nature of the garments that are sewn by Adam and Eve. I'll just say it this way. They seem to be concerned, especially concerned, to cover certain parts of their body. They don't sew tunics or togas. Our translation puts it loincloth. could be translated a girdle. Apron. Why are they covering these, we call them private parts? Brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you it's shame that is gaining knowledge by the moment of the significance of what they've done. Adam I and Eve know they're the first parents of what God intends to be a whole race of humans. They know that they have been evil themselves, and not merely good. And I submit to you at some level, they're ashamed of what their sin has now done, not only to them, but to all their descendants, as the facts would prove. So to put it plainly, they cover their reproductive organs, intended by God to produce holy and happy offspring, which now, apart from God's grace, are only going to produce sinful and miserable offspring. Kids, the serpent will not have to lead every human being into sin the way he led Eve through her Adam. Adam and Eve have taken care of that themselves. They've ensured that all their children will be conceived and born in sin. I see that as the primary significance or the kind of covering that they place on their bodies. But at any rate, I want to say to you, there is something appropriate about the impulse to clothe themselves. There is something right, in fact, inevitable about A sense of shame resulting in a desire to be covered. That's what modesty consists of. In part, modesty, as we speak of it, is keeping in mind those unsightly aspects of who we are. Paul has it in mind in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, "...those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty." But thinking in spiritual terms, sinners do need to be clothed, otherwise their sin will present a barrier to each other, their relations to each other, and above all, their relationship with God. That relationship with God is primarily on their minds, it would appear, because when God does come and confront Adam, he says, I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And God doesn't say to Adam, wait a minute, your nakedness isn't a problem. God says to Adam, have you eaten of the tree? So it's appropriate, the impulse to clothe themselves. Yet, this is what is so obvious reading it from the vantage point of time and, and redemption. The way they go about it is so absurdly futile. This is a flimsy set of duds, fig leaves, actually come to be a symbol for something that is inadequate as a covering. Their response to shame is to cover themselves, it's a sign of things to come. Not just of the clothing industry that would eventually come, but Brothers and sisters, I'm submitting to you that their impulse to cover themselves is a sign of the things to come, which will be a whole industry that sinful man engages in and sells to each other of self-improvement. Taking things in hand and doing something yourself about what's so unsightly about you. Indeed, what is sinful It's as futile, that enterprise of self-improvement, it's as futile as making trousers out of tree leaves. I couldn't this morning cite all the ways that as a culture we have engineered solutions to our own sin and shame. Whole category of them are ways in which we seek to make our sin disappear. Disappear. One way or another we get therapy to persuade us that at least in our minds it didn't happen or it's not our fault or we make sure that our online persona is airbrushed so there is nothing unworthy about us. There are a thousand ways that we can engineer the disappearance of our sin. There's as many ways to engineer the the relative shrinking of our sin. If we become a great philanthropist then our and little infidelities are counted so much smaller. If we're successful in that the workplace. Our failings of our, to our family are so much smaller. In Some cases, we're just, we're just committed to moving on. That sin happened. I'm going to change jobs. I'm going to change marriages. I'm going to move to another part of the country. Whatever it takes, I'm just going to move on. i try to leave my baggage behind. Cosmetics and clothing for souls, and they are abundant and they're all flimsy, like fig leaves. Especially when it comes time to confront God Himself. That's the world we live in, brothers and sisters. It's the world that, it's what the world is doing around us every day. You need to do something about the sin that brings shame in your life. But not what Adam and Eve did. You can't do it yourself. So you ready to hear what you can do? Well, it's not explicit in Genesis 3.7 because Genesis 3.7 is about entering into a world of evil. Brothers and sisters what the gospel does is reinitiate us into a world of grace and i want to conclude this morning by showing you how especially the new testament scriptures speaks of what god is doing in christ jesus in terms of the reversal of genesis 3 verse 7 Ab and Eve's eyes were opened. You know what you need? In order to have the problem of sin in your life addressed? You need that gracious work of the Spirit that opens your eyes to what is true as God Himself sees it. And the scripture actually speaks in those terms. Paul, the great missionary evangelist of the New Testament, is told: I'm sending you, Paul, to open their eyes. So they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's what the gospel is seeking to be the means of God Himself opening people's eyes to, yes, their sin, and yes, the solution that is only found in Jesus Christ. Some of you, perhaps here this morning, need to have your eyes opened. That's the first and most basic reality. Redemption. I need to tell you, if you experience it, will involve that sense of nakedness before an all-seeing God. The writer of Hebrews speaks this way, after he's spoken of Scripture as having the power to discern the reality of who we are, says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That sounds like Adam. That sounds like what Eve and Adam are experiencing together a sense of this nakedness. And that has its place in God's grace. It leads to the desire to be clothed, not by something of our own invention, but by God himself. Do you know? The New Testament Gospel speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness as something you and I put on, something you wear, something that covers you, takes away your sin, and gives you righteousness in its place. Paul says to the Ephesians, put off your old self. He says to the Romans, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Brothers and sisters, that's a world of difference from self-improvement. That's redemption. That's God's solution to our problem of guilt and shame. And that's what God will make a picture of. Before the end of chapter 3, when we read, The Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The skins will do a better job than tree leaves. But There's so much more in that act than just a little bit more suitable clothing. There's good news already in that. God's going to provide in the person of his son, specifically in the person of his son, crucified in our place on the cross. A way to cleanse us from our sins. Indeed, a way to be in his presence, righteous. Because we wear Christ in God's presence. So the same Christ we wear. The presence of God as the Christ does it work in our lives, even before one another, before the world we live in? That's the gospel. Seen as it were in a mirror in Genesis 3-7. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're ready all over again, Lord Jesus, to cast aside our flimsy fig leaves, to take you by faith as our garment of grace, be clothed in your righteousness, both wrought for us and wrought in us. We're ready to do it all over again. This is the soaking of our souls in true hope, true, true gospel comfort. Grant this grace to each one of us, we pray. Open our eyes. Clothe us with Christ. And This is our prayer today again in his name. Amen.